Ephesians chapter 5 this morning. Ephesians chapter number 5. Now, it is Father's Day, and so I figured I would kind of start it out with a fatherly theme, though that is not necessarily what we'll be speaking directly on today. Uh, You know what the difference between a bad joke and a dad joke is? The first letter. Amen. Yep, they'll get it. They'll come around. Maybe your dad was the king of dad jokes. Maybe he was actually a funny guy. I've, I've kind of narrowed down what I think to be three different classifications of dad jokes. Uh, the first one is the punchline dad. The punchline dad. He tells his own joke and then sets it up and then delivers the zinger at the end with a punchline. It sounds something like this. What do you call a dinosaur with an extensive vocabulary? A thesaurus. <laughs> then there's the quick-witted response dad. Most of us have, have this dad in some way or another. Dad, you, you say something like this. Dad, I'm hungry. And dad says, well, hello, hungry. Nice to meet you. My name's dad. You say, dad, no, I'm serious. Well, I thought you just said you were hungry. The quick-witted response, Dad. And then, uh, for what it's worth, Dad, this is just him giving his anecdotal, uh, worldly experience to his family around the dinner table. He'll just say something out of nowhere. He'll say something to the effect of, singing in the shower is fun until you get soap in your mouth. Then it becomes a soap opera. So those are some Dad jokes to start out with. This week, Happy Father's Day, and that's all I'll say about dad jokes the rest of the day. Last week, we began a series entitled Family Matters. Family Matters. Now, in our world, it seems to become, it seems to be coming increasingly less mattersome. The world doesn't think it matters anymore that a family unit would exist. It doesn't emphasize the importance of the family unit. In fact, there's entire organizations who within their mission statement profess that one of their chief goals is to destroy the family. You say that exists? Yes, it exists. You see, the family doesn't matter in our world, but the Bible says that the family still does matter. And that's why we teach this, uh, uh, this sermon series Today, Last week we began with the, the institution of the family. Jesus began the family. God instituted the family before He instituted any other institution. Government followed and the church was third. But the family was first in Genesis chapter number 2. And we found it. And that's what we studied last week. And so we studied the institution of the family, the foundation of the family. Next week, we'll look at the function of the family. How does this all work? That would be the intent. or what, What's its purpose? What is the family supposed to do? What is it supposed to prioritize? But this week, we look at the infrastructure of the family. If you don't like that word, you can call it the framework of the family. Let's take a look in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. We'll start in 21. Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear 
of God. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. You know, the Bible still values holiness. It still values purity. The Bible's never changed on this. And, and, and frankly, it is the immutable or the unchanging Word of God. That verse will never change. God still values holiness and purity. Verse 28. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. For we are the members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife, even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor thy father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with thee, and that thou mayest live long on the earth. We speak of the framework of the family. My wife and I, some years ago, had the privilege of building our own house. I've told you a few times about the uh, way we did it. We are no, by no means general contractors. Uh, I, I'm one of those guys that, while hammering the nail, hopes he doesn't hit his thumb. So I der- certainly don't have the experience to be able to build my own home. But we hired a general contractor to do it for us. And the, the contractor explained to us that the first thing that we would do as the house progressed, is we would build the foundation, which makes sense. We would establish the dirt work. We would then come and uh, uh, scrape out some of the dirt where the concrete would be poured in. They even put, not rebar, but this sort of cable that they would tension in the foundation. And then they would pour the slab. That is the foundation of the home. And then he said that the next thing we would do is we would frame the house. We would frame the house. And what's, what he then explained to us is, once we get the foundation poured, and once we get the frame up, up, everything from there becomes very easy. We were surprised that it seemed to go very slowly initially, that the house wasn't constructing as quickly as we thought it would. They had promised a certain deadline, and when we got a few weeks into that, we said, there's no way we're getting done. We'd been delayed by rain and so forth. But they finally got the foundation poured. We walked onto the foundation there at our property and we looked and we said, yeah, I don't think it's big enough. (laughs) I don't know if you've ever seen just a slab laid out. You're thinking, four people have to live in this? This is a doghouse. But nonetheless, we we said, well, we're kind of stuck. This is what we have. Then they began to draw out 
on the concrete the lines that the, that, that the framework would be laid in. And it took them about three to four days to frame our entire house. You know what? From that point on, it did go rather fast. And we were in our house just a few months later. But what I found interesting is when people come and visit our home, nobody ever compliments us on our foundation. And, and by the way, I'm the kind of nerd that likes our foundation. Like, I like the fact that we have the cables instead of the rebar. They explained to us that, you know, as the Texas uh, soils adjust, if it were rebar, it would bend and have memory. But the cable, it's tight, but it can flex and come back. And I'm the kind of nerd that's like, hey, come look at my foundation. But nobody ever compliments us on our foundation. Nor when they get into the house, do they say, you know what? And they go over to the wall and they kind of knock on the wall. They say, now these are some really good studs. You know, nobody ever compliments us on these things. But it's those things that protect us when the storms blow. You know, it's funny. People come in and they're like, oh, I love the color of the walls. As if to suggest the paint matters. They, they say, oh, I love the way you've decorated it. Look, all of Amy's J- poor man Joanna Gaines signs don't protect my family when the weather comes in. When the storm... I say poor man because we couldn't afford them at Magnolia. So she got on Etsy and ordered stuff. knockoff versions of them. You say, why do you bring this up? I bring this up because when the storms of life blow, it is not the paint or the decorations or the facade of your home that matters. It is the foundation and the framework of that home. And today we study the framework. How does God want our homes to be constructed? So, only two points this morning. And you say, praise the Lord, Brother Andrew. Yes, but I have 28 sub-points, so we must hurry. Number one, the parties of the family unit. Ephesians lays it out for us quite simply. You could even go back to the book of Genesis, but there are really three parties that make up the home. Verse number 25 tells us one of the first members of the home, and chronologically speaking, this is the case. Verse 25 says, husbands. That's the first party of the home. And husbands have a great responsibility. And it's interesting to me that God calls them husbands first and not fathers. Husband, your first priority is not your children. Your first priority is your wife. You're a husband first, a father next. And they're mutually as binding as one is to the other. They're, They're very important, but you were a husband first. You know, the Bible says over and over and over again... This not only existed in the Old Testament, but it existed in the New Testament. It's quoted by Jesus. It is quoted by the Apostle Paul. So we find that if it's mentioned over and over and over again, Old Testament, New Testament, by several different authors, that is meant for our important uh, note, notice. And here we find the Bible says, Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his own wife. Now here's what I find very interesting is that I've studied all those mentions of that verse. All those quotations. And it says, the man should leave his father and mother and cleave unto his own wife. You know what that means? It means that it is the man's responsibility to hold on to his wife. 
not the other way around. That word cleave means to stick to, adhere to. When used as a noun, that word literally means glue. Husband, you are the glue of your home. The problem is, in our society today, because of all the cosmopolitan magazines, they have suggested to your wife that she is to be the glue of your home. And because she has read those articles so many times, you have ceded the duties to her. Your wife does not hold your home together. If you were honest, husband, who contributes more to the cultivation and development of your home? You or your wife? Frankly and sadly, I think most of us would be guilty of allowing our wife the responsibility to plan date night. To make sure that our home functions as it should. You say, well, I've got a lot of work to do and I'm pretty busy down at the workplace. Friend, you are not so busy at the workplace that you should neglect your home place. The husband is to cleave unto his wife. You are the pursuer. We are very conquest-oriented and sad enough. What happens so often is when we court our wife, oh man, we get the roses. When we court our wife, we plan the date nights. We can't wait to talk to her. We can't wait to be with her. We can't wait to sit down with her. But once we get that conquest, we move on to another. Once we've conquered our wife and we've got her to sign the dotted line, we now begin to neglect her. That's not the way it should be. Husbands should cleave unto their wives. Neglecting even parental relationships... To pursue our wife. Husband, you have a great responsibility in your home. But secondly, the next party of the home mentioned is the husband and then the wife. Verse number 22. The Bible says, wives, submit yourselves unto your husband. So here's the first two parties of every home. The husband and the wife. In original, in Originally speaking... The wife was designed for a very specific purpose. You remember we talked about it a little bit last week. God said it was not good that Adam should be alone. He would then make for Adam, do you know the next phrase, and help meet. And help meet. That word meet there means suitable. So essentially the Bible says God designed a woman to help uh, Adam in a suitable manner. She is designed uniquely for that purpose. Now what's interesting is Adam noted the similarities when he saw Eve. Remember he said, This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. You know why he said that? It's because Adam has just spent probably weeks naming the animals. One by one God would bring them by and there would be the lion and Adam would name the lion. And there would come the giraffe, and he would name the giraffe. And though all of those animals have in their own certain way a beauty to them, none of them really looked like Adam. None of them walked like Adam. Adam was unique in creation. And so when he saw Eve, he had just remembered all the lions and all the giraffes and all the primates, and they walked by, but Adam, when seeing Eve, said, This is bone of my bone. This is flesh of my flesh. 
God designed her like me, for me. She is a suitable helper for me. But in our culture today, they are trying to suggest that men and women are the same. And they do it under the guise of equality. Look, I am thankful my wife and I are not the same. I could not live with me. So I'm glad we're not the same. But what we've got to understand is, sameness is not equality. In other words, you see even in, in sports today, this movement to have men competing against women and women against men. And the underlying theory is, well, we're all the same. We're not the same at all. Weightlifting records that have stood for women for years are being broken by men that could not even barely compete in the men's division. And you say, well, they, they, they ought to have the same opportunity. That's fine. But just because we're equal doesn't mean we have to be the same. What's more important in the contractor's tool belt? A hammer or a screwdriver? Well, when he needs to nail a nail, the hammer. When he needs to drive a screw, the screwdriver. But there is not one tool more important to the contractor. They're created for different purposes. They do different things. But on the day the the contractor needs to drive the nail, the hammer's important. And on the day he needs to deal with the screw, the screwdriver is important. One preacher put it like this. A man is infinitely superior to a woman at being a man. And a woman is infinitely superior to a man at being a woman. God made us different that He might make us one. He made us different that He might make us one. And so we see the wife, or or, we see the husband, and then let her see the children, verse number 1 of chapter 6, children obey your parents. Now, one of the primary purposes of God's design for marriage was for human procreation. What did He tell Adam and Eve? He said, well, you are to be fruitful and multiply, replenish the earth. You are to have children. The Bible tells us that, lo, children are in heritage of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is His reward. As arrows in the hand of a mighty man, so are children of the youth. Happy is the man that hath his quiver full of them. I remember years ago, about three years ago, I guess, uh, my, my wife and I had found out we were expecting our third child in, uh, in about six years. And uh, so we were a little overwhelmed, to say the least. We were excited to some degree, but it was overwhelming. We went over to my parents' house, and we sat down with them. And uh, you can tell the vibe of meetings when they're very formal. Uh, it just, you know, it, it, it's, it's obvious. We walked in, and I could tell my dad was starting to get like, okay, what's going on here? This doesn't seem like a normal family powwow. We sat down, and I can't remember if it was my wife or if it was me that said, well, we just found out we're pregnant. And uh, my dad, being the wise man that he is, the meekest man that I've ever known, 
just always knowing the right thing to say in the right moment of time, his reaction was, Oh no! (laughs) I wish I were embellishing that story in the least. My wife's heart was breaking. Sometimes I understand the news of maybe another child may not always be uh, joyful at first, but certainly as you have that child and you begin to raise that child, you learn that children are an inheritance of the Lord. God's given them to us, and it's a blessing to be able to have and raise children. Now these are the parties of the home. The husband, the wife, and those two combined forces against the children. No, with the children. All right. So those are the parties of the family units. Uh, Secondly, and we'll dig a little deeper here, here's the positions of the family. The positions. Because the parties are different than the positions. You have different roles and different responsibilities within the context of your home. So letter A, here's what the father's responsibility is. To be a sacrificial leader. Don't divorce the words from one another. You can't just lead without sacrifice. And sacrifice that doesn't lead is useless. You must be a sacrificial leader. You say, all right, come on, Brother Andrew. Now's where you tell my wife to submit to me. No, look, there's three types of leadership in the home. Okay, There is, first of all, tyrannical leadership. That is that husband that presses down his family in order to gain some semblance of leadership. That is not true leadership. That is dictatorship. Uh, husbands, you don't lead because everybody else has to, has to bend your bark. That's not leadership at all. There is secondly, timid leadership. That is the man who wants to create in his home a democracy. Everybody sits down at the dinner table and we all discuss major life decisions and we all take a random uh, uh, vote so that nobody is to blame. We put the cowboy hat in the center of the table and everybody fills out whether or not they think this is a good decision and we place our, hat, uh, our, our, our votes in the hat and then we sit around and say, okay, well, we, we, we win four to five, we're moving to Nevada. Amen. That husband is afraid of failure. That husband is afraid to take the responsibility that God has given him. You have dictatorship, you have democracy, and then you have what is truly right, and that is God's design, and that is thoughtful leadership. You know what the Bible says about a husband leading his family? It says in 1 Peter chapter 3, Likewise ye husbands dwell with your wives according to knowledge, Giving honor unto the wife. Know what your wife thinks. Know what your wife feels. And you say, how am I supposed to know? Ask her. I know that sounds like a horror movie, but it's not so bad sometimes. (laughs) Just ask her. Honey, what do you think about this decision? This is a big one. We've, We've got to know the direction. When you ask your wife what she thinks about a decision, you are not ceding to her your leadership. You are thoughtfully asking her, hey, what you, what, what, what's your thoughts? What, what's your input? At the end of the day, the responsibility to lead your home is yours. But you're asking your wife what she thinks about a matter. And the reason you do this is because you honor her. 
You know that word honor is used in 1 Peter again? It is the same word that relates to the, the Bible verse we quote often from this platform. We are not redeemed with corruptible things such as silver and gold, but we are redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. The word honor and the word precious are one and the same. That is the idea you ought to have of your wife. She's precious. Whoso findeth a wife findeth a good thing. And you must understand that if you're going to lead your home in a right manner, do not just lead your wife like a dog on a leash. You are together coming, you are two parties coming together to be one flesh. Know your wife, know her thoughts, know her desires. So if you're going to lead in a biblical manner, you must, first of all, love supernaturally. Love supernaturally. What do I mean by this? Well, verse number 25 tells us, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself for it. To be clear, this is that agape love that the Bible speaks of. When the Bible says that God loves you, it means agape love. It is a love not found in this world except by God's introduction of it. It is a love merely of volition. God has considered everything about what you have to offer, what you have to present to Him. He's also considered what His love would cost Him. And He's reasoned it all out and He said, but I still choose to love them. It is this love that the Apostle Paul speaks of in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 where he says, Charity or agape love suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself. Is not puffed up. Doth not behave itself unseemly. Seeketh not her own. Is not easily provoked. Thinketh no evil. Rejoiceth not in iniquity. But rejoiceth in the truth. Beareth all things. Believeth all things. Hopeth all things. Endureth all things. Charity never faileth. Husband, that's a pretty tall task for the way that you're supposed to love your wife. What I've even found is I don't necessarily see where the wife is supposed to love her husband. But the husband is to love in a sacrificial manner, willing to give of himself for the benefit of his wife. Love supernaturally. It is this love that is mentioned in John 3.16. For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son. 1 John chapter 4. Herein is love, agape love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us. This is not even a reciprocated love. This is a love, just I'm giving it, and I will sacrificially do so. You must First of all, love supernaturally. And then you've got to lead selflessly. Verse 23, notice this. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. And he is the Savior of the body. Now don't mistake what's taking place in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 5 is teaching the importance of mutual submission. Mutual submission. Notice verse number 21. Submitting yourselves together, uh, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. What is that? 
That's mutual submission. Submission on the husband's part and submission on the wife's part. Submission on every church member's part that we would be submitted first and foremost to God. Even look in verse number 1 of chapter number 5. Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children. What is that? You're following God. You're submitted to His leadership in your life. So this is not to suggest that the husband has free reign to do whatever he wants to. The husband is just as it is just as important for the husband to submit to God as it is for the wife to submit to the husband. That's so important. The breakdown is we have a lot of husbands that want to demand their wife submit by by uh, not submitting themselves to the Lord. That's not the way it works. We must lead selflessly. The husband is called the head of the wife, meaning he has been given headship over her. Now the way the head works is, pain sensations are communicated to the head. Pleasure sensations are communicated to the head. What hurts? The head controls the body. What feels good? The the head controls the body. And so, as the head, when the wife is hurting, head, you take care of it. When the wife is pleased and when things are going well, head, you keep doing it. The wife communicates to the head and she submits to it because she knows that the head cares for the entire body. You see, that's why the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 28, in our passage, look, for no man, uh, or verse 28, so ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. That's the, that's the idea here. You love your wife as you love your own body. Because uh, no man, in verse 29, ever yet hated his own flesh. You're not going to intentionally cause pain to your own body. Nor should you intentionally cause pain to your wife. You nourish it and cherish it even as the Lord, the church. And so you must love sacrificially uh, and you must lead supernaturally. So the first uh, position is the sacrificial leader. Here's the second position. The submissive helper. Verse 22. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. Now, a few months ago, I went to a couple's retreat. I was asked to speak at it. I taught a session entitled this, The Dirty S Word. The Dirty S Word. Some people thought it was a cuss word. Other people thought it was a word that probably belonged in the bedroom. No, the Dirty S Word is submission. This is a taboo subject that nobody's allowed to speak about anymore. There is, uh, besides... Uh, therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife. You would have to cut uh, fine hairs. But besides that passage, the only other thing mentioned as frequently in the New Testament in marriage is sacrificial love and a wife's submission to leadership. That principle is mentioned over and over in Scripture. Genesis chapter 3 verse 16 says that the husband would rule over his wife. Colossians chapter 3 verse 18. Wives, submit yourselves 
unto your own husbands. 1 Peter 3.1 Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection unto your own husbands. Titus chapter 2 Be discreet, chaste, keepers at home good, obedient to their own husbands. The fact is that submission can only be given. It cannot be demanded. Wives, it is your choice whether or not you will yield to your husband. And follow him in submission. But see, we act as if submission is a dirty word because it's only a binding on one party. That is so not the truth. Submission exists in all sorts of areas of life. You get hired on at a company. You don't go to the boss and you say, well, I just don't think it's fair that you can tell me what to do. You you, you don't go to an educational institution, walk up to the dean of students and say, I don't care what your handbook says. I'm going to do what I want to do. Yet in those venues, we willingly submit. When the officer turns on his reds and blues and he pulls us over, we don't say to him, by what authority do you do this? Why? Because yielding and submission is just a commonplace thing in life. Yet the devil in some way has introduced this cancerous idea that it shouldn't exist in the home. Look, the CEO is no more important than the man working in the warehouse. But those positions exist so that the task may be accomplished. We understand that wives may not enjoy submitting to their husband. I read a story some time ago that said uh, a husband kind of got short with his wife and kind of upset with her. He looked at her and he said, I cannot believe that God made you so dumb and so beautiful at the same time. The wife looked at the husband and he said, well, I can tell you why he did that. He made me beautiful so you'd be attracted to me. He made me dumb so I'd be attracted to you. (laughs) Maybe you feel that way, wives. Maybe sometimes you look at your husband and say, he's going to lead us right off the cliff. What is he thinking? You know, in the curse after the fall of man, God said to the woman, it's very important you pay attention here. Unto the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children. So we all acknowledge today that the pain experienced in childbirth is part of the fall of man. It is the curse that God placed on woman. You can thank Eve for that. But then he goes on to say this. He says, And thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. Now if you do a study on what that phrase means, it literally means this. All the days of your life, you're going to want to rule over Adam. You're going to want to usurp his authority. You're going to have moments where you say, Adam, why are you being so dumb? Adam, I can't believe you think that. That just doesn't make any sense. You're going to want to, all the days of your life, usurp His authority, but God says, I've given Him authority. It could be said that childbirth was not the most painful thing that fell in the curse that day. Childbirth exists for, for some ladies many hours, but generally it's limited for a finite period of time. If you get married, you are by virtue saying, God, I will submit to my husband all the days of my life. Talk about labor pains. May not be easy, but it is God's design. 
the husband should rule over thee, that is not to suggest that the husband is more important, or that he carries more value, or that he is in any way more spiritual. In fact, I can point to many relationships that the woman is more spiritual. I can point to many relationships where the, where the wife is more uh, logical. I can even point to some relationships to say the wife is just physically stronger. These are, that's okay, but God says, even in those situations, the husband should have rule over thee. You say, I just don't think it's fair. We understand then that the chief example of submission is Jesus Christ Himself. You see, Jesus, who is eternally co-equal with God in every way, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus was the one that stepped out according to Colossians chapter 1 and Hebrews chapter 1 and John chapter 1 and designed and created everything. Jesus was. Eternally co-equal with the Father, a child shall be born and His name shall be called Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He is eternally co-equal, and yet the Bible says of Him, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but humbled Himself and became obedient even to the death of the cross. Jesus humbled Himself and submitted His will to the will of the Father. Jesus is the prime example of the way a wife should submit to her husband. It may not be easy. It may not always be comfortable, but it always produces a better product. Amen. And so we find that there is the a sacrificial leader and there is the submissive helper. And then thirdly, there is the subordinate follower. Now this is the part where I can already hear the teenagers turning up their AirPods volume and shutting their ears off. Verse number one. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor thy father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with thee, and thou mayest live long on the earth. Two aspects of the children in the home. Number one, they are to obey. You say, blindly? Sure. You say, even if it's hard? Yes. You know why? Because the Bible like, doesn't even go very deep theologically here. It just says, for this is right. Amen. I cannot promise that your parents will always be right, but I can always promise that it is always right to obey your parents. Amen. It's right. It is right. Colossians chapter 3 says, not only is it right, it says, children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing unto the Lord. The best way a child can bring pleasure to the Father is just simply by honoring and obeying his parents. What's interesting is, the Bible says here that it is the first commandment with promise. It is not the first commandment. It is the fifth commandment. Of the ten, it is not the first. It is the fifth. The first four relate to our relationship with God. The next six deal with our relationship with men. That's why Jesus said, uh, the first commandment is to love God. The second commandment is to love thy neighbor. Jesus combined all the law into their two categories. Love God, love your neighbor. 
And the first commandment of the way we interact with, so, with, with, our, with our brethren, with people on this earth, was this. Children, honor thy father and mother. The first. And not only is it the first in order, but it is the first with promise. It is the only, as far as I can tell, ten, of the Ten Commandments that comes with an incentive. Children, obey your parents and the Lord. In fact, in Exodus it says this, That thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord God, thy God giveth thee. God promises blessing directly because of obedience. Children ought to obey. And in many senses, the fifth commandment ought to be a child's first priority. Because in obeying their parents, they're honoring the Lord. In obeying their parents, they're pleasing the Lord. The fifth commandment should be their first priority. But it not only says, obey your parents. Notice in verse number two, it says, honor thy father and mother. Now you cannot remove the two from each other. Here's, here's the issue. Most teenagers look at their parents and they can't stand the rules. Or they, 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 they don't like what's being asked of them. Or maybe they just want to spread their wings and fly a little bit. They want to make decisions for themselves. And a lot of times they, they want to experience things that their friends are experiencing. We understand these things. But one day if a child wants to make a decision for God, they cannot just say, Alright, today I choose to honor my parents. Today I choose to obey them. Whatever they ask me to do, I'm going to do. They cannot make that decision apart from changing the way they view their parents. You cannot obey for any length of time if you do not honor. You understand? So you can't say, alright, well, if my parents tell me to be home at 10, I'm going to be home at 10. But I'm going to do it with an eye roll. No. No, it doesn't work like that. Because of the reason you obey is because you honor. You honor, first of all, their parental authority. I think we can all point to times where our parents were wrong. I, I, except my children. They probably couldn't. They, they, they don't have any of those opportunities like that. But we can all point to times where we'd say, you know what, mom and dad didn't make the best decision. But it's always the right decision to obey mom and dad. And so you respect their parental, their parental authority and you, and you obey and you respect your own personal spiritual responsibility. God looks at you and says, alright, all I ask of you is you obey your parents. That is as binding upon you as, this, as it was on Jonah when God said, Jonah, go to Nineveh. We look at Jonah as if like, he's a bad guy. No, God just told him to do something and he didn't do it. If children choose to reject the principle of honoring and obeying their parents, they are hopping on the ship to Tarshish and they will end up somewhere in the whale's belly. God says, I will bless you if you will do this. And if you do not do this, it will end poorly for you. So we find many things. We find even in the Bible, 2 Timothy, that disobedience to parents would become something that happens in the latter days. You know what the Bible says? This know also, that in the last days perilous times shall come. Speaking of the de-evolution of society, a lot of evolutionists want to think we're getting better. Dude, just turn on the TV. We're not getting better. 
just look at the front page of the news. Things are not heading in the right direction. The evolutionist theory is, yeah, we're getting better. No, we're falling apart. And the Bible says, Know this also, in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents. You know what? That one comes before? Traitors. In the order of significance, it is placed before people that are traitors against God and His Word. This is what society wants to make you think, teenager. Disney Channel will tell you this. Nickelodeon will tell you this. MTV will tell you this. TikTok will tell you this. You know, all these things will tell you this. Your parents are foolish and you probably know what's best for your life. And God says... Even if your parents are foolish, what's best for your life is for you to honor and obey them. Not easy. Just like it's not easy for a man to stay in tune with what God wants for his family. For him to constantly be abiding in the vine. For the wife to then submit herself to the leadership of her husband because the husband is submitted to the lordship of God. And then the child has to come in behind all this and says, Okay, Mom, Dad, I understand God has given you authority and I understand it is my spiritual responsibility to honor and obey you. Because I honor you, I will obey you. This is the way the home should function. Years ago, in the 1930s, San Francisco decided to build what now is known as the Golden Gate Bridge. Now, it's kind of iconic for those of us that watch, what is it, uh, Full House? Is that it? It's kind of iconic because it's one of the opening scenes there. Many of us know it and some have even seen it in person. When it was built, it was constructed and was one of the wonders of the world at the time. It at the time, oh, being over a mile long, was the longest suspension bridge there in the world. Now, since that time, I think there's three or four that have surpassed it in length. But literally, there's a tower on the bay on one side, right where the shoreline and the bay meet, and there's another tower on the other side. Everything else is just empty bridge, no other supports that go down into the bay. What's interesting about this bridge is the engineers designed it so that it was welded and bolted fastly together, but within it, they designed it to flex to adjust. It's said that in a 17 mile an hour breeze, this bridge will move as much as 27 feet horizontally and 15 feet vertically. How many of y'all want to go stand in the middle of that boy? <laughs> but the engineers designed it to sway as, as, as outside forces acted upon it. When they were building the bridge, the way they constructed it was, they had to pour a deep foundation. They had to get rid of all the loose dirt and that which had been affected by the water. And they had to drill down into the bedrock. And interestingly enough, in the 1930s, there was not much technology when it came to scuba equipment. So these men were divers and they would wear weighted scuba suits with tubes, essentially a water hose, running down to their masks, and they would go down and they would plant charges into the the earth. And they would put these charges there and they'd swim back up and the dynamite would explode and they'd do it again. And they'd go down and they did this time after time after time. And so that the 
the, the pillars, the towers that support the Golden Gate Bridge drill deeply into the earth's core, or earth's crust. Man, I hope it didn't get to the core. That would be rather volcanic. Uh, but they go very deep into the bedrock, and the uniqueness of the bridge is that it sways. You know that why the, that bridge has stood for about 90 years? Because of its foundation and its flexibility. The framework allows it to function and take on the challenges of life. The same is true of your home. Your foundation establishes what God designed for marriage. Make sure you've established your home like God designed it originally. And when the challenges of life come, make sure you bend and are malleable to the forces that interact, working within the framework that God has designed. And today, maybe, you know nothing about what it is to have a godly family. You know nothing about what it is to live for God, or you say, why would I even try to raise my family like this? You see, all the things I've spoken about today do not begin because one day you set on a journey, you say, you know what, I want to live a good life. You don't set out on a course and say, you know what, one day I want to be, I, I just want to do things according to God's Word. That desire only comes from a Christian. Meaning, not somebody who's culturally Christian, not somebody whose daddy took them to church for a long time. The only reason somebody would ever want to apply their life to the Bible is when they come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. And when we know Christ is our Savior, when we have been forgiven of our sins, and we say, Lord, I will follow you as the Lord of my life, that's when we look at this book and we say, you know what, that's a better plan than anything I've ever read before. I trust that if God saved me, He's also going to guide me into raising a family for Him. So today, if you do not know 100% sure that you're on your way to heaven, today you can know that. And we'll take care of all the family matters later. The thing that matters right now is your eternal salvation. Today, if you don't know Christ, you can know Him. We'll have a time of invitation in just a moment. You can come forward and take God's Word and show you how you can know you're on your way to heaven.